time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. How many of you um, as youth leaders, youth pastors, my name is Glenn Packham. I just want to say hi. You know, hi, hi. How many of you have, uh, have uh, been to Desperation, you know, or let's say it this way. How many of you, this is your first like Desperation, first time with Desperation? Like, wow. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks for taking the risk. Did you have an extra, like, extra special person? Yeah. Thanks for taking the risk and, you know, bringing your, your, uh, your students and being out here. Really appreciate that. Um, how many of you have been a part of this conference uh, for, say, two years? This is your second time. Second time. Third time? Fourth time? Fifth? Sixth? Seventh? Eighth? Ooh. This is my 10th. Um, yeah, I know. I didn't say that so you can give me a hand, but I, um, I, um, I've been on staff here at New Life Church for 11 years. I started out in the worship ministry. A couple years into that, we started a school of worship. It's still going strong. Uh, I stepped away from all that. When the conference first began, um, I was one of the um, leaders and, and songwriters for the Desperation Band, and so John and Jared and I. Uh, all kind of started that together, but uh, three years ago or so, I made the choice to kind of step out of all of that to sort of um, pursue the thing that's been deeper in my heart, and that's this love for teaching the Bible and this love for pastoring people, and uh, I, I have to say this, all of you that are giving your lives to this, to being pastors, whether you have uh, the title of it or not, you're functioning as shepherds and you're functioning as pastors, I, I just want to say thank you. I thank you for doing that, and thank you for... Uh, the sacrifices that you make uh, to do that. Um, very often, what happens in pastoral ministry is not the stuff that ends up on the cover of magazines. It's not the stuff that... Here, come on in, guys. There's some seats here. There's some seats over there. And uh, I think that's just it, isn't it? Is uh, the people that, that do end up being called the heroes or do end up being called the uh, role models um, sometimes might be good at other things, but they're not necessarily good at being pastors. Do you know what I'm saying? And the real people who, who, who sit down and cry with others and weep with them and talk with them, uh, you, you don't often hear about them because it's, it happens in, 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 the, um, in the back room. And I just want to say thank you for that. I, I, was, I grew up in Malaysia, which uh, you know, is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back around. And, um, and I was deeply impacted by youth ministries. I was particularly impacted by youth pastors who... Uh, allowed students uh, like myself to lead and to be part of teams that, that would preach. And that's how it awakened in me a love for the Word of God is I had youth leaders that said, hey, why don't you give the sermon this week? And I said, really? And they said, sure. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, I, 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 had youth, I had youth leaders that said, hey, wh- wh- I, you know, we see that you love music. Why don't you try leading worship this week? And I said, really? And they said, Yeah. And so I'm grateful to youth leaders that took a risk on me, and it was a, it's, a hu- it's been a huge part of my journey in discovering what the Lord has, has placed in my heart and how I might be able to uh, serve and, and all of that. So thank you. All, all of that is a long way of saying thank you. Uh, my role here at New Life has changed over the last three years, as I was starting to say. I stepped out of the worship position. There's a service on Sunday nights that I serve as the lead pastor for. I teach at that each week. Uh, and then I help oversee kind of adult spiritual formation, so Sunday, adult Sunday school, small groups, things like that, uh, which 
is a difficult thing to say you oversee because it's such a, something so mysterious about uh, all of that. If I were to ask you what's the formula for getting your kids to grow in Christ or to be a disciple, uh, you'd say, well, I, I don't know, I just I listen to them, I pray with them, I sit with them, right? And, uh, and I think, um, you know, be, be suspicious of anyone who says I've got a formula for discipleship for you. Uh, because following Jesus doesn't often fit in molds, you know. So, hey, before we get started today, I just wanted to tell you about a couple of things that are on your table. Uh, this is a card that my publisher made uh, for my new book called Lucky. Uh, it's on the Beatitudes in Luke 6. It's a, it's a fresh look at these Beatitudes and saying, uh, using a word that Jesus used uh, uh, when he said these blessings, a very non-religious word, a word that just highlighted how people were fortunate, and yet he was highlighting the poor and the powerless. And so uh, that can be a tremendous message for young people who, are, who feel like outsiders to know that uh, because of Jesus there are no outsiders, that we're all brought in, amen? Uh, but it also is a message about carrying this kingdom and carrying this good news. So th- this is kind of a cool thing. Uh, I've never seen uh, many things like this until the last year or so. I- I'm sort of a slow a tech guy, but... Um, Apparently, if you scan this on your smartphone, it'll pop up a video, and the video will give you like a trailer about the book. So, but if you you know if you like to live on the wild side, you can just pick up the book right away. So, uh, there, there's the book, there, there, and forget trailers. But there, there, they, uh, there's uh, discussion questions at the end of each chapter and all that. And then um, just to try to keep the little bit of the musical side of me alive, there is this little EP. It's, it's uh, seven bucks or so at the bookstore, and it's just a, a bunch of new songs. But just want to tell you about that. Um, this is a strange-looking book called Butterfly in Brazil um, that um, uh, I actually wrote out of um, a lot of some of what we were discussing with students and, and college students and uh, students coming out of high, their high school years and trying to figure out how do I uh, do something great for God. And uh, I actually want to take a couple of those themes and talk a little bit about that today. But before we do, let's just say a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we belong to you. Thank you that we're yours. And uh, Lord, as we open your word today, let life by the Holy Spirit come into our hearts and into our spirits and beings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know how much time when you're at the grocery store, how much time you spend looking at uh, the magazine racks. Most of us probably try to avoid that. Uh, but once in a while, you kind of pick it up. The other day, I was on vacation and was watching the local news, which I almost never do. Uh, and, uh, and, and after the local news, this show came on, Entertainment Tonight or something like that. And it was all about celebrities, you know, and celebrities doing this or that. And it might have been a Schwarzenegger thing. And, you know, so, and I found myself trying to do the dishes and focus on the chores that I was doing that day at home because... Um, you know, I got three young kids, and when I'm home, I do everything I can to help out. And um, so, but I, I kept being sort of drawn to this thing on the TV and, and thinking, what's going on? What, what's happening uh, over there? And then finally, I got sick of it and turned it off. But you know, we live in a culture that is, uh, in a strange way, obsessed with celebrities, uh, obsessed with people that are maybe living a life that, that we don't have or we kind of want, or maybe we don't want, but whatever the reason is, we're still sort of curious about it. Uh, and in the church world, that happens. And as I was saying earlier, you, know, you think about being in youth ministry or being in youth ministry at all, um, Christian magazines do their own share of, of putting people on covers and saying, look, here's a celebrity and here's, here's someone that you can kind of, you know. And, and there's a part of me that says, yuck, you know, that, that I, don't, I don't know about that. I mean, why should, why should we sort of glamorize this or that? Uh, and yet I understand that there's something deep inside all of us 
that wants a person to look up to. Am I right? That wants someone that we can say, yeah, I admire the way they're doing ministry. I admire the way they lead worship. I admire the way they preach. There's something about them that I kind of look up to. The church historically recognized that, and that's one of the reasons why the church for a long time has uh, called certain men and women saints or called them uh, these great men and women. Said, look, these are the ones that you can look up to. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, they call them icons. And if you've ever been to an Orthodox church, you'll know that on the walls of the church are painted different pictures of different icons throughout the centuries. And it might follow this sort of uh, historical timeline, and it'll come to this part here on the right-hand side of the wall where all of a sudden it's blank. And if you ever go to an Eastern Orthodox church and ask the priest, why is this part of the wall blank, he'll tell you, oh, it's because that's where you belong. That's where your image goes, as if to say you and I are living icons, living pictures. Now, not, that's not too far off from what Paul said about us being living epistles, living letters that speak of Christ. And there is maybe a, a need for a difference between, say, celebrity and royalty. I have a friend who, in his later years of life, went through a tremendous crisis of faith and and started coming back to the faith by discovering, believe it or not, Catholicism. And, and really uh, um, becoming a devout, uh, born-again Catholic and, 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 and studying and reading some of the early writings of the church fathers and all of this stuff became very meaningful to, me, to him. And he said, he said, Glenn, it's very interesting, but he said, I kind of wish as, as Protestants that, that we had royalty. You know, people who, when they speak, there's a certain amount of authority to it. And I've been thinking a lot about that because in place of having any sense of authority, uh, we maybe have popularity. And so whoever's most popular becomes the person that we look up to. But that's really celebrity, isn't it? And and, and where are the people that, that have authority that we can look up to and say, you know, that's maybe more like royalty. Who are these icons that we have for what I'm trying to do? Who are the icons of youth ministry? Who are the icons of church ministry? Who are the people that we can look to? Naturally, we want to say, well, let's look to the Bible. There's got to be people in the Bible. And so we turn and we read stories of David or Abraham or Moses, and we, and we read these stories of these great men, and we think, wow, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, that, that, that's really cool, but that's just not me. I mean, you don't know how I ended up in youth ministry. It's really sort of an accident, or I'm really filling time. I'm just a volunteer. I'm just, you know, I don't really fit in this. I don't belong. I'm not, you know, whoever, whoever, whoever. And then you come to a Bible character named Nehemiah. And I love Nehemiah because he's one of those improbable icons. He's one of those guys that probably shouldn't have had a book named after him if you if you really I mean if there was like Bible action hero trading cards I don't know that anyone's trading for Nehemiah you know I mean when you look at his stat sheet he was not a king okay so it's like strike one he never really fought a battle I mean he's kind of ready he had the sword he was ready. never fought about never had a prophecy what never prophesied any, no dreams no visions nothing charismatic in fact, he never even did a miracle. Like, what a loser. Did this guy not have faith? I mean, what's wrong with this guy? Nehemiah falls in the, the period of Israel's history that's often referred to as the ordinary days, ordinary, the, the unspectacular time where there weren't a lot of exceptional heroes. And that's why I like him. I like him because I think 
that speaks to where most of us are, if not all of us. It speaks to where I am. It speaks to where I often find myself. And so I want to just very quickly, very briefly this morning, make a few remarks about his life and see if the Holy Spirit would take any of that and land it in our hearts today. Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verse, verses 1 through 4. Uh, let me turn to it real quick. Uh, many of you know, may know this, but the background of the book is, um, is after exile. Um, what happens after Solomon is king? Solomon leads Israel astray uh, with all their idols and all of this stuff. And, and, and God basically says, look, Solomon, out of respect to your dad, David, I'm not going to rip the kingdom from you in your lifetime, but as soon as your son takes the throne, look out. And so it happens. Rehoboam comes on the throne, and he has some terrible leadership blunders on his own part, listens to the counsel of, uh, of youth instead of the counsel of the older, which is a whole other sermon in itself. And, uh, and, and as a result, Jeroboam comes in, and they split the kingdom. Jeroboam takes ten tribes, keeps them in the north. They keep the name Israel. Uh, Rehoboam takes the two tribes in the south, they take the name Judah, okay? Um, Much of the Old Testament is the story of the good and bad kings of Israel and Judah. Israel had mostly wicked ones, and they're all compared to Jeroboam, and and Judah has a couple of good ones here and there who lead momentary revivals. Um, But in about 722 BC, the Assyrians come in, they take the northern kingdom, they take these ten tribes, and scatter them. They just scatter them all abroad. They, 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 They try to sort of make these tribes disappear by forcing them to intermarry, intermingle, and all this stuff. Uh, Judah gets spared for at least about 100 years or so after, but 587 B.C., uh, Babylon comes and says, hey, let's start taking these guys away. And they go through three different invasions and carry off uh, the upper class and carry off um, basically everyone but the sick and the lame. Uh, and, and they leave those behind, and they carry them away to Babylon. Well, not long after that, in like 539 B.C., Babylon gets overrun by the Persians. This is the ancient world. It's kind of like trading spaces, empire edition, you know. Let's all take turns to rule the world, okay. So, so by the time of Nehemiah, it's somewhere in the mid-400 B.C., and, 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 and um, the Persians are now in charge, and they seem to be a bit nicer than the Babylonians. But listen to where the story picks up, Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now remember, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem, never seen it. All he's heard are the stories. He's grown up here in this Persian uh, city. And, and, and so he, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he prays this remarkable prayer. And the first maybe observation about Nehemiah that we can make is this, that Nehemiah had a burden larger than himself. Now that's something we can kind of relate to. He had a burden larger than himself. There was a great article David Brooks wrote in, in, as an op-ed column in the New York Times a couple weeks ago saying to high school graduates and college graduates that maybe we're giving them the wrong advice. He says a lot of times what we tell graduates is go take some time and discover yourself and find out who you are and then wait for the perfect job that doesn't compromise who you are and then you'll get, that, you'll get the sense of fulfillment for the rest of your life you know, and all this stuff. And he says... Who who made a difference ended up uh, in their jobs that way? By contemplating their inner self, 
finding out who they are, and then finding the job that lined up perfectly with that. None of us took that path, right? Instead, and, and this, is, this is a totally, you know, non, not a Christian article, obviously. Brooks says, hey, what if we told graduates they should lose themselves into a cause that is larger than themselves? And I thought as I read the article, hey, that sounds a little like Jesus, doesn't it? And whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever tries to lose it, you know. And Nehemiah here has this burden that's larger than himself. Chances are you got into student ministry because you have a burden larger than you. That you have a, a vision for young people, a vision for maybe revival or something about your campuses or something about your students or something about the next generation. Something about it troubles you. And maybe you've even had a moment just like this where... When you found out something or you saw something on TV or you heard a report about a kid who committed suicide, you heard about this, and it broke you, and you wept and fasted and prayed. The kind of fasting that Nehemiah does was not a scheduled one. There's nothing wrong with scheduled fast, but this is the kind of fasting where he's just so overcome with a burden. My hunch is a lot of you know about that. And we move on in the story, and it goes to Nehemiah 2. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and I had not been sad in his presence before, and so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever, but why should my face not look sad when the city of my, where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? This is where the story begins to take maybe an unexpected turn because we can relate to Nehemiah having a burden that's larger than himself. We get that. You're there. I'm there. We get it. What we find maybe, what I find a little surprising and hard to relate to is that for a few months, he just keeps going in his job. You're thinking, dude, why don't you like do something radical? Like, you've got this burden, you just go. And he stays in this job and, 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 and this phrase that he says here, he says, I had never before looked sad in the king's presence. I think that's remarkable. Whatever your, your job may be, I have a pretty good guess that it's better than Nehemiah's. Because, you know, the whole reason to be a cupbearer to the king is not just to make sure the wine was good and the right year and all that stuff, but it's to make sure that nobody had poisoned it. Uh, in, in fact, likely Nehemiah got his position because someone else had vacated the position, if you know what I'm saying, okay? You work at Starbucks, you have a bad day, you, you know, you, you spilled the, the latte or whatever. He has a bad day, he's dead. And he says, I had never before appeared sad in the king's presence. I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me that Nehemiah had learned the art of doing small things, things well in the here and now. It seems to me that Nehemiah had learned to do small things well in the here and now. To say, and that's the second observation about his life. So number one, he had a burden larger than himself. But number two, he learned to do small things well in the here and now. So often what plagues our young people is the great illusion of someday. The great illusion of someday. Someday 
when I do this, then I'm going to go on this. And once I get to that Christian college, then I'm going to be involved in missions. And then I'll do something about orphans. And then I'll do this. And maybe then I'll do this. Instead of saying, if there's a burden that's larger than yourself, how does that play out in what you're doing here and now? What impact does that have on the here and now? Nehemiah is able to do his job so well, never looking sad that the one day he can't help it, he looks sad. The king says, hey, what's the matter with you? You're never sad. And then he just comes out of him because it's this burden. It just comes out of him. And the king says, well, what do you want? And when, when the king asks him that, you'll see that his, Nehemiah's response is not, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe, I mean, he just he kind of goes for the moon, you know. He says, well, um, how about some time off? Okay, I'm listening. How about um, a bunch of supplies, like all the timber from the king's forest? And all, yeah. Okay. Because I want to rebuild the walls, uh-huh, the temple, uh-huh, and a home for myself in Jerusalem. Mm. And the king says, all right, you got it. You got it. I don't know that this is why, but could it be that part of why... This opened up was because Nehemiah had served this guy so faithfully. I, I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's something about that whole, you know, did this well in the here and now, and that led to the what was next, you know? But I think there's a couple of, of things that we can think about this for, even for our students, you know. My, my, one of my best friends in the world is back here, Jeremiah Parks. And a, a couple years ago, uh, Jeremiah led this charge with, with the student ministry here at New Life about saying, hey... We, we are realizing that there's this tremendous uh, plight around the world of orphans, millions and millions of orphans, and particularly the situation in Africa it, it seems very hopeless, very helpless. And uh, they decided as a student ministry, you, you, a lot of you maybe know this story, but they decided as a student ministry, what if we try to raise some money and build an orphan home? Now this is a, a great example of not waiting for the, for the, the, the perfect someday but saying, hey, what about now? What about just trying something small now? <laughs> Except that, to me, it wasn't that small what they were trying to do. They, 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 um, each home was going to be $30,000, and they said, ah, let's try to build two. Now, I, you know, I, I think anyone around them would have said, okay, guys, maybe like start small, you know. These kids got such a hold of this vision, they, they took on extra jobs, they took on extra babysitting hours, they took on extra shifts at work, they did all this thing and gave all of this money away, and in the span of eight weeks, raised $67,000. It's crazy, crazy. And, 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 and it spawned, and, and I, what happened out of it is heart work formed, and heart work became this thing that said, okay, look, most people... I mean, who knows if this was a one-time miracle, fluke, whatever, but let's, let's make it even more bite-sized. And so they basically partner with a bunch of different ministries like Children's Hope Chest and a bunch of orphan ministries that, that do work around the world because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. But they took from them and they said, okay, let's, let's create a little catalog here that has everything from like a $100 project to a $10,000 project and let's make a little menu of it and then let's turn around to youth groups and say, look, could you get three people? Could you get four people? Could you just, could you, what do you think? In a summer, in a year, you could, re and they started doing this. I love it because... It puts feet on a burden, to a burden. It doesn't just say, God, I'm so moved by this. But it says, okay, well, I, I, let's try to do something here. 
Nehemiah's little thing of doing small things well as a cupbearer actually played out in what he would do with his life because when the king gives him passage, guess where he goes? He goes to Jerusalem. He rides in Jerusalem in the middle of the night on this donkey and he rides in and he looks at the ruins and then the next morning he meets with the people who are there and he starts to unroll this plan. And do you know what his plan is? It's pretty unspectacular. This family, you take this I don't know, 50 foot, 60, whatever. You take this section of the wall, it's yours. For the next two months or so, that's your assignment, okay? You, this family, you take it. I mean, it's a compelling vision, but at the same time, very, very simple. Just, hey, what if you guys, this family, you take this section, this family, you take this, and everybody just keep putting one brick on top of the other until we're done. Everybody just keep doing well, no story would be complete without a villain, and Nehemiah has his share of villains. He has these people in nearby provinces that are convinced that he's doing something subversive, and nobody uh, you know, has approved this. And, and so in chapter 6, these guys try to distract him, and they say to him in verse 1 of chapter 6, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Here it is. Come let us meet in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Which should be a red flag. Um, but, but they were scheming to harm me. And so I sent messengers down to them with this reply. I am doing a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Now, had I been next to Nehemiah that day and heard him give this reply, I might have been tempted to say, Psst, a great project, a great work. Who are you kidding, man? You're like swinging the hammer. You're putting mud on bricks. It's not exactly textbook greatness here. And yet, he says, no, I understand that this is my assignment. This is where I am, and so I believe it's a great work, and because I believe it's a great work, I'm not getting down this wall. I don't care who's calling, I'm not getting off the wall. What I want to say to you as youth leaders and student ministry workers is it's hard sometimes to see it. I know that. I know when you go back, your head's down, and you're dealing with complaining parents and under pastors who maybe underappreciate you. I, I understand all the challenges that you're going through. But maybe this week can be a time where you lift your head up just a little bit and hear the Spirit of God say to you, you are doing a great work. You're part of something remarkable. If it's difficult to believe that, it's okay, because it was difficult for Nehemiah too. I get the sense that he may have struggled with thinking about what he was really doing because... His prayer in the book of Nehemiah frequently is this phrase, remember me, remember me. Think about that. Maybe somewhere in the back of his mind he's thinking about Abraham, he's thinking about Moses, he's thinking about Joshua, he's thinking about David, he's thinking about Elijah, and he's saying, God, I have no idea where I fit in that. I don't know. I don't know where I land. But God, please, just remember me. Remember that I'm trying. 
Remember that I'm putting one brick on top of another. Remember that I'm trying to get these people here, this stubborn group of people. Remember that I'm trying to do, remember me. You ever feel like that? God, remember me. God, I hope you see what's happening here. I went to a, a Christian university in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Old Roberts University and uh, you know, whatever you may think about that, I, I had a good experience in some ways and, and a, a challenging one in other aspects of it. But one of the things that they kept saying to us over and over again was, um, look, this, this place is a result of one man's obedience. And, and God can do this with your life too. And it really is remarkable. Recently, I was at, uh, invited to speak at a seminar at Regent University. And they too have a similar story. They were showing me this beautiful brick campus, which... In retrospect, I kind of wish ORU would have looked a little more like Regent. You know, Regent has this nice brick. Anyway, and ORU looks like the Jetsons, but um, <laughs> great school, great school, but the architecture. And, uh, and, and the folks at Regent were saying a similar thing. Look at this place. This, is a, this place is a result of one man's obedience. And, and I, that, that line resonated uh, or remi- it brought back a lot of memories because I remember so many chapel speakers saying over and over again, come on students, you're called to do great things for God. Come on students, God's got great things for you. And the, the gold standard uh, uh, implicitly always seemed to be, you too could be a well-known evangelist at Bilsey University. I like the idea of being inspired, but I think we need to redefine greatness. I like the idea of being inspired to say, God, do something extraordinary, but I think we need our definitions redefined. I think it cannot look like, like, like largeness. It cannot look like megachurches. It cannot look like big universities. It cannot look like big conferences. That's not the definition of success. Nehemiah stands as a rebuke to our culture's fashion, fascination with the spectacular. The story of Nehemiah is a rebuke against our culture's fascination with the spectacular and the dramatic. And Nehemiah reminds us that what God counts as success is faithfulness. That what God counts as success is doing small things well over the long haul. Over the long haul. So if our first observation was that Nehemiah... Uh, you know, had a burden larger than himself, then he learned to do small things well in the here and now. The third observation would be that he learned to stay the course. They put brick after brick. They put brick upon brick. They, did, they stayed the course until it was done. And here's why I think he was able to do that, because he believed deep down that what he was doing was a great work. May the Spirit of God so fill you with his perspective and vision that you come to see every child that you sit with and talk with and weep with and pray with as a great work. I'm not saying carte blanche, everybody just needs to stay where you're. I don't know that that's true. But I do know that, that there are some times that we jump a little too quickly. I do know that there are some times when God isn't done and no place is ever God forsaken if you're still there. Some 400 years or so after Nehemiah rode into Jerusalem in the middle of the night, another man rode into Jerusalem, this time in broad daylight. He was riding in on a donkey and the walls were high and the gates were strong and the crowds were there in mass, 
shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. One of the gospel writers says that Jesus kind of stops and looks around as he's riding in. And I imagine maybe in that moment Jesus kind of looks up and says, Nehemiah, I remember you. Nehemiah, you were right. You were doing a great work. You see, he couldn't have known it, but if he hadn't built the walls around Jerusalem, there wouldn't have been able to be this massive return of all the people. The city would not have been able to flourish again, and even though it got overrun later by Syrians, or Greeks and Syrians and Romans, still in the time of Christ, the city is there. And because the city is there, the Messiah comes riding into it. Could it be that the bricks that you're laying is just setting the scene for Jesus to come in? Could it be that every conversation that you have with a student, every sermon that you think nobody's paying attention to because they're texting in the back, could it be that every youth group that you do, everything that you, is just one more brick that sets the stage for Jesus to ride in? Could it be that you really are part of a great work and you just don't see it I believe that the answer is yes I believe that there's always more going on behind the scenes than we see I believe that the Lord is always involved in our stories and that when we allow ourselves to submit to him and say God choose to be faithful that he can take faithfulness and take an ordinary story and weave it into his story Amen. I want to close with a song and then I want to invite my, my, my friend Jeremiah to come and tell you a bit more about some of this stuff because I, I, I can't talk about these things and not think about heart work because I think about this as, I think of this as a twofold thing. This, this message is for us as youth leaders, but I think as we live out faithfulness, we teach our young people to redefine greatness. Do you know what I'm saying? We teach our young people that doing something small now is part of how God's kingdom works. We teach our young people to step away from the fascination with the spectacular and the dramatic. And we teach our young people to embrace success as faithfulness. This song um, it was actually written five or six years ago. And um, I wrote it when I was in a time of transition personally, just, just which... Um, in retrospect, really doesn't seem like much, uh, but it was 2005, we were getting ready to have our first child, our daughter, Sophia, and uh, we were in between homes, and, and just lots of stuff swirling, right, and so I'm sitting down at the piano, and I wrote the song, well, it ended up being recorded on a New Life Worship album in the following year in 06, but the album didn't release till December of 06, and I couldn't have known that in November of 06, our church would go through this amazing scandal that rocked us. And somehow a song that came out of my itty-bitty transition became a song that our church embraced during its corporate transition. And it's about God's own faithfulness to us. Um, I, I recorded a new version of it because I, one day I realized that this, this video of this song from that New Life recording years ago I had almost half a million views on YouTube and I knew something was wrong because most of my videos don't have anything close to it. It's about 499,000 less than that, you know. 
And I, it occurred to me that this song is called Everlasting God, and it's the same title as that really big, famous Everlasting God song by Brenton Brown that Lincoln Brewster recorded. It was a number one hit and all this stuff. And I realized that's what happened. People were looking for his song and found this one. Um, so, anyway, it's just a, that's just a side note for songwriting, you know, like, write another song called Shout to the Lord or something, you know. Um, <laughs> Um, anyway, let, let's, um, I think they'll, they'll put the words up. If you want to sing along, sing along. If not, if you want to just be prayerful, be prayerful. Uh, but, but, but hang out for a bit after this, and Jeremiah's going to come up and, and maybe uh, tag on a few things on his heart.
after the day's gone things over have passed everlasting God would you just kind of open your hands up to our Father in heaven God you're the faithful one even when we are faithless, your word says that you remain faithful, for you cannot forsake yourself. Thank you for the, t- the way that you've been there for us, times that we've fallen, times that we've failed, the times that we've been discouraged, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your covenant is forever. Teach us to be faithful to the places, to the people you've put us with. Teach us, Lord, in big and small ways to to follow you, to obey you. Lord, give my friends here strength. Give them a fresh wind of your spirit today, Lord, to fill up their hearts and fill up their lives, Lord, to open their eyes, to be able to see, to see you at work in the midst of ordinary, in the midst of unspectacular, to trust that you're here, that you're there. Thank you for the students that you've placed in our care, Lord. Teach us to love them. Teach us to care for them. May we set the stage for King Jesus to come in to their hearts and their lives. Thank you, Lord. In your name. Amen. Amen. Let's thank God. Jeremiah, if you come and just share a few closing bits here, just give us another three minutes or so, folks, and then we'll go to lunch, okay? Man, Glenn, thank you so much. That was awesome. Awesome word, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, guys, I know you've got to get going and uh, got the lunch thing to do, so I'll be really quick. First, I just want to say all of you are incredible, amazing. You are the heroes. You're the ones raising up a young generation, and we're so happy to have you here at Desperation. I hope you're having a great time. Um, as, as far as hardware goes, I just wanted to give you a couple details. Um, on your table there, you'll see there's some DVDs and a little print piece. Uh, Please excuse the very cheap homemade-looking DVDs. We put all our money into rescuing orphans, and so uh, the DVDs are... Uh, but don't judge a DVD by the cover. What's inside of it is great. So um, that's a, about a 15-minute presentation for you that re- just really helps to lay out the ins and outs of Heartwork, what we're about, how it works, has a couple of our videos in there. But one thing I wanted to point out to you guys, and that the little print piece on your table kind of talks about this, is that there's really two different ways to do Heartwork within your group as a youth pastor. Um, and... Both are great, but it's just up to you how you want to do it. You can rally the troop together and say, guys, we're going to take on this. We're going to build a home. We're going to do some bigger project. We're going to put in a water well. And you do that together collectively as a group. 
The other thing that you can do is empower your students to start their own groups. So um, giving them ownership, challenging them to take on their own thing. And one of the things that's, that, that I really like about that aspect of it, it the significance there is when they take the ownership, you're challenging them to say, hey, go get your friends involved. Because here's one of the things that we found. Some, you know, I, I've been a youth pastor for about 13 years, and I, I know that we always want our students to share their faith. We want them to go tell their friends about Jesus, but a lot of times that's really difficult for them to do. It's hard to have the conversations about if you die, are you going to go to heaven or hell? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know about the cross, the resurrection, all of that? But you know it's not difficult? is to say to your friends, even if they're atheists, to say, hey, did you know about this sex trafficking issue? Did you know this is happening to little girls around the world? And, you know, I'm doing something about it. I'm doing this project, and I was wondering if you'd want to be involved with me. And that friend who doesn't know God says, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. What do I do? And they jump in and get involved. And what we found is it's a way to share Jesus. It's a way to open the door to the gospel. And it shows, like James 1.27 says, that pure religion is caring for the widow and orphan. It's showing our students are able to show their friends who don't know Jesus, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a believer. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. We're people who are making a difference in the world through the power of God. It's not just social activism, but it's introducing people to the Father God, revealing the heart of the Father, not only to the orphan, but to our generation. There are students all over our country who are spiritually orphaned. They don't know the Father, and this is just one way that maybe they'll come to know Him. So you can challenge them to do their own group, their own project. Um, there's also a thing we've started called 30 Days of Hard Work. We wanted to make sure that hard work didn't become about a fundraiser. It is important that students learn how to give. It cuts to the core of the selfish, uh, self-indulging culture that we live in. But we don't want it to just be a fundraiser. We want it to be an experience. And so 30 Days of Hard Work challenges them as they're going through doing a project. We challenge them to do things like sleep on the floor, eat beans and rice for a couple days, go a day without wearing shoes, try to not use electricity for 24 hours. Do some different things that help you experience what orphans go through. And as you do that, we're giving them ideas to pray about. And what we've seen happen is students are sitting there eating a bowl of rice that that's the fourth meal in a row that they've eaten beans and rice, and they just start weeping. Hearts breaking. They're starting to get it. And so we challenge them to pray, hold a prayer meeting, hold a fundraising event, you know, raise awareness, all of that. So it's, a, it's an entire experience. All that stuff is on our website, or you can go to the Heartwork Village and get signed up. You can do it either way. You don't have to go back to the village, but if you want to do that, we can help you before you leave the conference, get connected, or we can help your students. Um, and, and one last thing, We've, we just launched a new website yesterday morning, in getting it up in time for the conference, so I don't know if any of you guys have ever had the woes of trying to get a website up, it can be difficult. We got it up, it's about 85 to 90% complete, so as you're going through, if you run into some difficulties or something, this link doesn't work or that doesn't work, please be patient with us, it should be good by the beginning of this next week. Uh, we have a programming team that's actually working on it furiously even as we speak. So um, if, if you have any trouble, you can contact us through the site. Our phone number's on there and email and all that, and we'll help you out. We are here to serve you guys. We care about your students. 
They are not a means to an end of rescuing orphans. We believe that God wants to rescue orphans through your students, and he wants to rescue this generation through the orphan. So as we pour ourselves out, we reveal the Father God. So we love you guys. Thanks for being here. Have a great time at lunch. We'll see you back in a little bit. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.